Today we're going to take a look at uh, Jesus as a teacher. And uh, you know, since I'm a teacher, I always am fascinated by the passages of uh, the Bible that describe Jesus' teaching. And uh, you know, we modern-day teachers can learn from him, and yet uh, he was a teacher in a unique way. Uh, if you see a guy you know, teaching using some of his methods, uh, you know, I'd encourage you to run away because <laughs> uh, you know, we, uh, you know, we wouldn't honor a modern-day teacher who claimed to be uh, the Messiah, a modern teacher who said, I and my father are one, or a modern teacher who says, you know, the only way to God is through me. Um, and the next time Jesus comes back, he won't be teaching. He'll be on a white horse. Uh, and so uh, we'll see him again, but it won't, be, it won't be in the same context. But for those of us that teach today, there are some of his, mo- uh, his ancient methods that we can apply to modern-day teaching, and uh, we're going to learn about parables today and why he taught in parables. Uh, let's go ahead and pray. God, I thank you for uh, thank you for the worship we've enjoyed this morning, and uh, uh, Lord, uh, uh, it's my prayer that it uh, it's been a, a fragrant offering to you. God, open our hearts, open our minds. Uh, we've got a kind of challenging passage to deal with this morning, and I ask Lord that you would uh, um, help us to discern it spiritually, help us to understand it uh, as you would have us to. God, we want to believe the things that you would have us to believe, and uh, renounce the things that you'd have us no longer to renounce. And Lord, we we ask that our lives would reflect those beliefs. Help us to live lives that, uh, uh, that match up with our talk. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So in Mark uh, chapter 1, verse 22, it says this, The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. The scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they, they taught as if they were reading off a research paper. They would, they would ex- explain what they wanted their audience to believe, but it was based on the citations from authorities. And oftentimes it would be Old Testament authorities. Sometimes it would be this rabbi or that rabbi. Or Jesus sometimes said, well, here's what you've heard, but now here's what I'm going to tell you. All the rest of us modern teachers teach like the scribes and Pharisees, uh, just in varying degrees of, of excellence or mediocrity. Um, I'm... When I teach you, I teach you based on what I see in the Old Testament, what I see in the New Testament, what Jesus said, what Paul wrote, um, sometimes what modern commentators have to say about those. But I'm not going to stand in front of you and say, well, here's what the Bible says, but listen to me, because this is what I'm going to say. Well, no, I'm I'm not going to teach that way. And Jesus didn't teach that way either, exactly. He didn't didn't overturn the Old Testament scriptures. He fulfilled them. He did sometimes reject the teachings of Israel intermediary uh, rabbis um, where, where they would say, well, here's what the Old Testament scripture says, but there's what this rabbi says. Jesus said, well, here's what I'm going to tell you. This is what the father says. Uh, he used several methods. Um, the parable, and that's what we're going to focus on for the next several weeks. The, uh, and the parable is just a story. We'll talk about that in a minute. The epigram, that's just a, a, like a saying, a slogan, uh, kind of like what Ben Franklin would write in Poor Richard's Almanac, No Pain, No Gains, an epigram. Uh, Love your neighbor as yourself. That's a Jesus epigram. Argument. He debated from time to time. Um, little evangelistic tool. I don't see any examples of Jesus debating people into the kingdom. That wasn't a method of teaching that he used on unbelievers. He used it really to confront the religious establishment. He debated in and around the temple with the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. He used question and answer a lot. Uh, whom do men say that I am? Whom do you say that I am? He used the object lesson. He take a kid and say, look at this child. Unless you come to me in faith as a child, uh, you won't see heaven. A parable uh, is what what we're going to focus on for weeks, probably months. Um, 
it's an extended metaphor or even a simile, because oftentimes he said the kingdom of heaven is like this, descriptive of a common object or action to illustrate a spiritual truth. So it's, it means really showing two things alongside one another. Here's the thing you know, and here's the thing you don't know that I'm trying to illuminate to you. Here's, here's the, the thing that's part of your common everyday life, and here's how that explains what the kingdom of heaven's about. It's different from a couple things that are similar, like an allegory or a fable. An allegory, like Pilgrim's Progress, has several points of comparison. Like almost everything in Pilgrim's Progress stands for something else. Where a parable, sometimes you have more than one point of comparison, but be careful about trying to do that too much. Don't try to make everything mean something as we look at the parables, because sometimes there's just one main idea. If we, gra- if we grasp the main idea, we'll understand what Jesus was teaching. And then it's, it's a, similar to a fable, but different in a very key way. You know, you're familiar with Aesop's fables of the, you know, the sour grapes and the, the, the race between the tortoise and the hare. Um, here's the, the key difference. I mean, well, the similarity is there's a story with a moral, right? And what's the key difference? Aesop's fables, or a fable in general, they're impossible, impossibly fictitious. You know, there's not going to be a real race between a turtle and a rabbit where they have a conversation about it. Uh, you're not going to see that in nature. And so it's a, a made, totally made-up story. A parable could be fictitious, but it also could be real. It describes a real event. There was a farmer in a field. There was a master talking to a servant. Uh, these are plausible events, you know, perhaps invented for purposes of the story, but they're real-life, everyday events, not animals talking. So that's the difference. Parables have several advantages. Easy to understand them on the surface, but we're going to see today that sometimes their deeper meaning is a little harder to grasp. Easy to remember. And always, Jesus wouldn't tell them if they didn't have a relevant spiritual application. This means something to my life today, and and that's the, the, the key thing about a parable. He used several different topics that would have been familiar to people, his audience in the first century Near East. He talked about farming, property ownership, household activities, Jewish worship, family relationships, even cooking. And the applications, there's, I could make a much longer list, but just a couple of main ideas. The kingdom of God is a very common topic. Of 38 parables that we can list, 12 of them are about the kingdom of God. Several are about prayer, several are about uh, uh, Israel as contrasted with the Gentiles. And Jesus often taught in series of parables. He does a series on the kingdom of God. All these par- He'll tell a bunch of parables in a row that illustrate the kingdom of God. Another series illustrates how it should impact our individual lives. Because of the kingdom of God, this is how it ought to look in your life. And then towards the end of his life here on earth, he told a whole series of parables on the judgment. You know, the, the one about the sheep and the goats. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. That's in, in, in a series of a couple other parables that are about judgment, separating this group from that group. And then we go to Matthew, and the disciples ask Jesus. In Matthew chapter 13, starting with verse 10, uh, the passage that Tyler read for us, the disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. And then Jesus is going to quote two Old Testament prophecies that he's fulfilled in teaching in his parables. One of them is very easy to understand. It's the second of the two. I'm going to skip to that one because it's so easy. The other one kind of challenging, and I want to sort of peel that one apart and spend, uh, spend most of this morning having a look at that. Psalm 78 is a psalm of Asaph, and that's the one that Whitney read for us at the beginning. Um, Jesus quotes that in Matthew 13, uh, 
actually Matthew quotes it in uh, chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. So simply Matthew says, the psalmist Asaph said, prophesied of the Messiah that he was going to teach in parables. Here Jesus did it. It's a fulfillment of the prophecy. The Jesus and the New Testament gospel writers and Paul uh, in writing the epistles were very conscious of the Old Testament scriptures and very conscious of how the life and ministry of Jesus fulfilled those scriptures. Now the other passage that, that Matthew quotes is more common and actually more troublesome. Um, I think you'll find this passage to be somewhat challenging, perhaps even offensive to the sensibilities of the 21st century reader. Um, it's Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And this passage is, is cited six times, at least in part, in the New Testament. Um, Jesus, Isaiah the prophet, wrote it. Jesus quoted it. Matthew, Mark, and John all cited it. Uh, Paul um, spoke, uh, referred to it when he made a speech, and Luke wrote it down in the book of Acts. So troublesome or not, it's not just some... It's in the Bible, and it's all through the Bible. You know, from the Old Testament to the New, it's a, it's a passage we're going to need to deal with. Let's go backwards through this list and start with Acts, and, and we'll read what, what, how, how it was used in Acts. We'll read how it, used, it was used in John, and then we'll go back to Isaiah and have a long look. Now, this is kind of one of Paul's farewell addresses. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn. And I would heal them. Paul's describing people's rejection of the, of the gospel message. And what he says is, Isaiah said this was going to happen. That, that people would... The message would be presented, and people would be deliberately stubborn uh, and reject the truth. John says the same thing in uh, John chapter 12, starting with verse 37. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs, in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts. So they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Now, when I think about this passage, it reminds me, uh, I, I could think of some examples from our own life where Paul and John and, and Matthew and Mark, as we'll see, are quoting from a small part of a passage in Isaiah. And I think instantly it's familiar to all the listeners and readers of that day. Uh, I'd like to take you back to Isaiah chapter 6 in just a moment. I'll try to illustrate the principle first. Um, it's, a ver it's a chapter with uh, uh, 11 or 13 verses. At 13. But he's just quoting two. And I think for the hearers and readers of this day, 2,000 years ago, reciting this small part would have instantly opened them up to all the others. I'll try to, I'll try to illustrate what I'm talking about. If I said to you there's no joy in Mudville, does anybody here know why? Mighty Casey struck out. Mighty Casey has struck out. 
Uh, now that's probably kind of an old reference for some of you. I'll try to come up with a more modern one. My son wants to buy a, uh, wants me to get him a Red Ryder BB gun for Christmas. What should I tell him? That's right. You'll shoot your eye out. Um, now, why is that so easy for everyone to understand? Because most of you have seen the movie, and and when I quote that little line from a movie, not only does that scene where the you know the evil Santa kicks him down the slide, you know, shoot your eye out, kid, and uh, his his hopes and dreams are dashed, but but now probably you're thinking about the rest of the movie, and you're thinking about you know the silly leg lamp that Dad had, and the the dog eating the Christmas turkey, and them singing "Deck the Halls" at the Chinese restaurant on Christmas Day, and you could picture like the whole movie now. And so I just refer to this small part, but but it'll bring back a lot to you. I'll give you another example. If I say I'm going to huff and I'm going to puff, what else am I going to do? Okay, whose house? One of the pigs, right? How many pigs? You know how many pigs, right? I don't have to tell you all the details because everybody knows the story. Now, what's the point? The point is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Jesus, they all knew the same stories. And their stories, of course, they didn't watch a lot of movies. Uh, Their stories were Old Testament stories, right? They knew the law and they knew the prophets. So when Jesus quotes Isaiah the prophet, even a small part the whole prophecy is going to come back to mind for these Jewish kids, these students of the Torah. So I think it would be profitable for us to go back and look at the whole prophecy. It surprised me this week to find that this little uh, passage from uh, verses 9 and 10 of chapter 6 is part of a very familiar passage that we've read several times here. I've read it a couple times when our missionaries have come. It's the, uh, the passage that describes God's call to Isaiah, uh, where he has the vision and touches his lips with the coal. And essentially, if we look at the end, God's going to say to Isaiah, I got this job for you to do. They're not going to listen to you. Um, but, but I'll preserve a few. Uh, but let's read and see what it says. Isaiah chapter 6, uh, starting with verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? I want to step outside today's message just point out. This is one of the passages that that we believe speaks to the Trinity. The the Trinity is one of those challenging concepts for Christians because there's no clear-cut theological passage in the Old Testament or the New Testament that says, Here's how the Trinity works. Um, and yet you find this benediction uh, repeated oftentimes in the New Testament, the idea of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Where do we get that idea? Well, we get it. It's not clearly stated in the Old Testament, yet it's hinted at in a few different places. Uh, back in Genesis, God says, let us make man in our image. Now, why does he use the plural? Uh, you know, if I was saying, if I was speaking of myself, I wouldn't use the plural. I wouldn't say, give us a cookie. I would say, give me a cookie, right? Uh, why does God say, let us make man? And right here he says, who will go for us? And then another hint in this same passage, holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord Almighty? Why is it repeated three times? So these are sort of hints about the Trinity without a clear-cut explanation. Isaiah's answer, I said, here am I, send me. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Now here's where my Calvinist friends say, see, it pleased the Lord to ordain them for destruction. And it's hard to argue with that. It's, it almost looks like that, that, that it's God's purpose that they be deceived. And my, my Baptist friends say, oh, no, no, no. It can't say that. It, it can't mean that. You know, it's not God's will that any should perish. And they'll find scriptures to, to back you up there. And being non-denominational to me isn't a total cop-out. It means that we can, we can adjust our focus. Um, I want to, first of all, I want to keep reading. This passage reminds me somewhat of Pharaoh, uh, where we find the passage in, in, in the Bible, it, it, you can't escape it. It says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And yet, just as many times in the Bible, it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And, and what, I, what I happen to believe about Pharaoh and God is that Pharaoh inclined his heart towards stubbornness and unbelief. And it was the judgment of God. You get to go with that. Uh, in Romans 1, people were darkened in the futility of their own thinking. And what's, what's the judgment of God? He let them go. He let them go on the path that they'd started on. But let's, read, let's keep reading and see how, uh, how, how God finishes this message to Isaiah. Then I said, that's the eye there is Isaiah, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Terebinth is like a, a winter tree that is a, you know, there are no leaves uh, because it's winter, but it's still alive. So here's God's message to Isaiah. I got a message for you to preach. I want you to go preach this message. They're going to reject your message. They're going to reject me and you and the message. And that, that message is going to make them more stubborn, not more soft-hearted. And that stubbornness is going to bring ruin on them. And yet notice what, what God says to Isaiah at the end. There will be a remnant. I will preserve a remnant. Now, haven't we found this to be true for all time? I mean, isn't it true? It was true of Israel that, that even when God brings his judgment, there's a remnant that he preserves. Is it true of our society today? And would you say that our society today is a society for whom it, would, it defines us to say we're God's people, tools in his hand, let's follow his will? It doesn't really seem to me to describe the, the society we live in, and yet God will preserve a remnant. And there's a, there's a precious promise in here in the middle of the judgment. And the judgment seems to me like harden your heart towards God, remain stubborn in your unbelief, you're going to get more of that. The truth that is revealed, that is offered to you, is going to make you harder, not softer. And yet, God will preserve his people. Let's take a look at how Matthew deals with this passage. And back to Matthew 13. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand. Now, again, this is one of those passages that's kind of it messes with our modern sense of fairness, doesn't it? Can you picture a politician delivering this same message to the voters? 
I want to make sure the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. People who have, I want to give them more. People who don't have, I'm going to take even take away even what they have. Yeah, that's not going. To, we're not going to vote for that guy, are we? And that's that's clearly what this says. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Spiritually speaking, this is a truth that we can't escape. When God gives to you, you use what he's given you, you give, you, he gives you more. When God gives to you and you don't use, you, you do not, you're not a faithful steward of the small things he's given to you, he'll take even that away. You know, we're going to see the parable of the talents when we get there a little, in a little bit uh, in a few weeks. That's, that's one of the parables that illustrates those principles. I often use uh, time management as an example of that. Uh, I think I've mentioned this earlier uh, earlier this month even. You want to get something done? You'd think that logically it seems like it would be better off to find somebody who's got a lot of free time. But I found if I want something done, I should ask somebody who's busy because busy people get things done, and they know how to get things done. And people who, who, who have a lot of leisure time on their hands uh, seem to uh, um, not to have the habit of getting things done. I don't want to take that one too far, but uh, uh, spiritually speaking, uh, that that's a principle that that Matthew describes that I think you can find a couple other places in the Bible. Let's look at verse 14. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Now, hear the very last part of this passage, because this is a blessed promise for the disciples of Jesus and by extension to you and me. This is Jesus talking to his disciples, and I believe talking to us too. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Sometimes I feel like that when we want to choke on, the, on this passage and when we want to get our backs up because we're offended at it offends our modern sense of fairness. I think the problem is that we're trying to fight somebody else's battles. You know, you're here. God has revealed his truth to you. And what you're responsible for is how you deal with that. You're not responsible for whether that works out well or how, what, what, what started the process of unbelief in somebody else's life. You're responsible for dealing with the truth God's revealed to you. If, this is a truth you'll find throughout Scripture, the law, the prophets, the Gospels. If you're stubborn in your unbelief, you need to repent. And if God's given you the gift of understanding, ears to hear, understanding what he's revealed to you, well, thank God for that. And yet what I oftentimes see people wanting to get kind of choked up on is the idea of whether God's fair based on their standards. And that strikes me as kind of an illogical thing to do. Now, logically speaking, I'm not for unbelief, but logically speaking, if you don't believe in God, then that would produce a series of actions and beliefs. But if you do believe that there's a person called God who has the powers of God, it strikes me then as illogical to audition him to see if he measures up to your standards of fairness and is therefore worthy of my worship. If, if he's God, then making sure he matches up to my standards doesn't really seem that sensible. I want to see if I measure up to his standards. I want to, I want to, to, 
to study his word. I want to, to, to see my life through his eyes as best I can. So when I stand before him, I get to hear well done. Um, I've heard people describe a number of times a feeling of being stuck in their spiritual walk, stuck in their discipleship. Of, I feel like I'm not growing. I feel like God's not speaking to me. I feel like I'm, I, I don't understand. And if it's possible to go back in your life and, and look at the things that God has shown you, look at the things God's revealed to you, it might be, it might be possible for you to find out how this started. Because what I've found sometimes when I've had these conversations is, the person I'm talking to can identify a time in their life where they felt like God was calling them to something, God was showing them something, and the answer was, no, God, I'm not ready for that. And, and do you realize that there, there's a certain illogic to the, the statement, no, Lord? Because by definition, Lord means you're the boss, not me. And so when we treat God as if he's our subordinate, submitting ideas for your approval, we're, we're out of whack, right? We're, we've got things out of order. You know, he's the boss, and, I, and, and my appropriate response to him is, yes, Lord, what, what will you have of me? What will you do with me? But when I go in and say, well, God, I didn't like that last idea you had. You got anything better? I think what I've done is created my own spiritual timeout chair, and I'm kind of stuck there. And, and until I say yes, Lord, to the thing he said to me last time, I'm not really, I don't have ears to hear. I've created the, that, that hardness of heart, that stubbornness. I don't have ears to hear because he communicated his will to me and I rejected it. Well, that's by definition a, a, a hard heart, eyes that don't see, eyes that are a heart that is calloused. And, and the scary thing to me is every time that happens, I think it gets harder. When you hear his truth and yet don't respond, I think you build a mountain of stubbornness, a, a wall of hardness between you and God. And I think he can bust through that, but I think it's harder. Um, I think it's, it's easier. Your obedience today makes tomorrow's obedience easier. Your stubbornness today makes tomorrow's stubbornness more likely. Let's go on and take a look at the, uh, the book of Mark, and we'll finish with Mark, and we're going to see how he treated the same exact passage, starting with verse 10, chapter 4, verse 10. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven." Now, from this you might conclude that it was the intent of Jesus to obscure the truth. I think there's a part in which that's most definitely true. His message was going to bring his death. Hey, I'm the Messiah. Um, I'm the one you've been looking for. Ultimately, they're going to kill him for that. And so there's a practical reason that he doesn't want that to happen prematurely. He's got three years of work to do. He's got disciples to train. He's ready to go to the cross, but in his time, not theirs. And so there's a, there's a practical reason that, that he doesn't want the wide-open public to have access to all the secrets of the kingdom. But I think we could look at a couple other passages in Mark, same chapter, and see that it's not ultimately the intent of Jesus to obscure the truth. Let's go to verse 21. He said to them, Do you bring a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So I think this applies to, the, to, to these truths, that the things that Jesus said in parables that were understood ultimately by his disciples but not by those that didn't believe are meant to be understood. And Jesus said they're going to be disclosed. 
And then uh, let's finish with this passage, verse 33. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. And so he intended for his disciples to understand. And, and who are you and me? We're his disciples, aren't we? He intends for us to understand his truth. So I'll finish with this question today. Do you have ears to hear? If so, thank God, because it says plainly here in Matthew 13:10, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. It's not by any merit. It's not because, oh, these are some real smart guys. I'll give them the knowledge of the secrets. God chose you, and he revealed the secrets of the kingdom of heaven to you. Do you have ears to hear? Thank God for that. If you don't, if you're, if you're stuck in stubbornness and unbelief, well, let me add my message to the prophets and the, the gospel and the epistle writers. It's time to repent of that. If, if, you, if you have hardened your heart to God and you remain stubborn in your unbelief, well, well the, Bible, the message of the Bible is plain. We've got to turn away from that. And I'll, 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 I'll add my two cents of call to that too. I encourage you, turn away, repent. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And Lord, I thank you. This is a, um, an interesting passage, a troublesome passage in some ways, but Lord, uh, we worship you. Uh, God, you're God, and we're smaller than that. And we, uh, we ask you to, to reveal to us your truth. Uh, we ask you to give us the grace to respond appropriately when you do. Lord, if there's anyone in this room that needs to respond uh, to your, your call today, I ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd be the one to touch them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.